Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This morning's gospel presents us with a problem. Actually, several huge problems, if you were listening. The first is that the discipleship that Jesus bears, that Jesus describes, bears little resemblance to the discipleship we often hear preached about or associated with Christianity in today's day and age. At its worst, discipleship today is described as merit-based or associated with prosperity. Become a disciple of Jesus and the troubles that have ailed you will magically evaporate. Begin a regular routine of prayer as a disciple of Jesus and your blood pressure will be within normal range. I realize these are hyperbolic examples, but you get my point. You've heard something like this somewhere. I see no evidence of measurable relief in the opportunity that Jesus describes this morning. The discipleship of pop culture bears little to no resemblance to that which is found in Holy Scripture. This leads me to the other huge problem, not with the passage, but with our interpretation of the passage. While Jesus does not describe a what Jesus describes does not a successful recruitment strategy make. It's too brutal and asks too much of the average person who is interested in hearing Jesus preach or curious to learn more about eternal life. As a result, the church universal has softened this passage over time to become something that it is not. I've certainly been guilty of preaching a version of this with softer edges that sounded something like this. Jesus didn't mean that you had to hate your family, just that you shouldn't let them run your life. Or that part about taking up the cross means that Jesus should be at the heart of your intention for the day. Everything you do should be in the spirit that Jesus would intend. And then you can check that box about cruciform sacrifice. But if I'm being honest, that's a distortion of what Jesus says because it's much easier to talk about. We've created a job description for the disciple that has almost nothing to do with that which Jesus describes because we know that few, if any of us, would be interested in making that cut. The preacher Barbara Brown Taylor has a memorable sermon about this passage that I know I've mentioned before. And I'm going to quote it rather extensively because it is from her honest take that I draw heavily this morning and whenever I hear this passage. She writes, I do not know how the church could have survived all these years without modifying the extremism of Jesus. If everyone in the large crowd who heard him that day had taken him at his word, then I'm not sure we would be here today because most of them would have turned away and the few who followed would have been dead in a few years, as extinct as Willie Mammoth's. Instead, I think some of those who heard him that day knew that they could not follow him. They had families they did not hate, lives they still loved, and possessions that meant a great deal to them. They may have admired people who could walk away from all that, but they knew that they were not such people. 
So they went home instead of to Jerusalem, some of them no doubt relieved to have had the choice put so starkly that there really was no choice, while others could not stop thinking about what it would have felt like to step out of the crowd, to step right up to Jesus without checking with anyone else first and say, okay, I'll do it, let's go. Given the choice between softening his call so that they could all believe they had answered it, and preserving its hard, uncompromising beauty, even if that put it out of their reach, the friends of the disciples chose the latter. They did not go to Jerusalem. They went home instead to catch fish, to have babies, and to start churches. They went home to tell other people what Jesus had said and done so that his living word continued to rouse new generations of disciples and friends. Along the way, they found a third way to live with his high call to discipleship, neither turning away from it nor lowering it, but allowing it to shimmer high over their heads where it provoked them, disturbed them, inspired them, and strangely reassured them. They may not have followed Jesus to Jerusalem, but their hearts did. Even if they had counted the cost of following him and come up short, he changed their lives all the same. It's why we are still here today, because of the disciples, certainly. But even more so, because of the friends, who were people more like us, after all and who discovered, like us, that God's love is as free as rain. There is no extra reward for following. The following is its own reward. Brown's interpretation is a more honest assessment of my own lived faith. I have not given up all of my possessions, nor do I have any intention of disowning my family, through whom I come to know God better on a daily basis. But this more honest assessment also does not let us off the hook. If we are more accurately friends of the disciples, as Brown describes the majority of us, that still informs who we are called to be. Through the gospel narratives, we encounter countless stories of Jesus's interactions with large crowds of people who did not become disciples those who listened to him preach, those who were healed by him, those who witnessed a healing, those who shared a meal with him, and those who followed where he traveled. An official count might tell us that only 14 times did these interactions result in a disciple leaving everything to follow him. Every other time, he sent the people back home to tell everyone what God had done for them. Statistically speaking, we can infer that the friends of the disciples were fantastic storytellers because there were a lot more of them than there were the disciples. This makes me wonder about the ways in which they used words to convey those stories. I wonder whether it was over a meal or while gathered at the well or over an altar in one of the very first house churches. I wonder about the ways in which they did not use words but did their best to mimic that which they had experienced in Jesus, donating some of their earnings to a family who had lost everything, 
sharing a meal with those whom they had previously overlooked, or modeling forgiveness and grace for their children. Though the church might have us believe otherwise, I think, I think it is the friends of the disciples, all of those who have gone unnamed, who helped us get here today. This morning, instead of dismissing this text as too much, or is meant for someone who is more faithful than you, I hope you'll use it as a catalyst to wonder about how your life shares the good news that we have come to know in Jesus. Perhaps another way to do that is to think about the ones who have provoked, inspired, disturbed, and reassured you about this call to share both your faith and the stories of the wonderful things that God has done for you. Of course, the examples of the Teresas, the Martins, the Bonhoeffers, and the Romeros of the world serve as a beacon upon a hill. But I'm more curious about the people with whom you live and work and parent. Who are the ones in your midst with whom you could subtly but faithfully share the good news? How else might you use your actions, not necessarily having to worry about words, to share God's love. As Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us, there is another way, a third way to live with this high call to discipleship, neither turning away from it nor lowering it, but allowing it to shimmer high over our heads. Amen.